Why would a student pursue a combined MD-PhD degree? What is an average day life like for an MD-PhD student? What do ultrasound waveforms have to do with an MRI? What was the transition from Princeton to the University of Utah like? Today on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, I interview Lorne, an MD-PhD student here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, welcome to another edition of the pod. I've got a great guest today. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Dr. Chen. I'm so excited you're here. Um, you're an MD-PhD student. Uh, that's correct, yeah. So let's talk about that. Why MD-PhD? Well, I mean, it, it's kind of, I think my journey, I, I think probably for a lot of medical students, started a ways back. And just it kind of goes back to back in high school. I had a sports-related injury that I struggled with for a number of years and just found a wonderful doctor that made a really big impact in my life. And I think after that, that really made me start thinking about this field of medicine. Hmm. And so I knew after college that I wanted to do something in the medical field. And uh, so after college, I started working doing engineering stuff. So I was doing medical imaging and doing medical imaging research. And this is um, out GE, right? Yes, General I, Electric. Yeah, so it's at General Electric. Mm -hmm. And I kind of the way it all came about is I just saw so I, I before I've been working on electric vehicles, I saw a talk on MRI and it just really combined a lot of my interests in physics and medicine. And so I was able to kind of I like to use the word chisel. I was able to chisel my way into an opportunity there. Mm -hmm. And uh yeah, and uh so I think, you know, when I was working in that role I think that's when I really got the further inspiration to pursue the MD. Um, and one thing that I noticed in terms of my research is I wasn't always connecting it with what would be the best clinical impact. And when I saw MDs that were working in that research area, I saw that they were having a lot better impact in terms of figuring out what the problems that needed to be solved in the field were and solving them. And so that was kind of one check on why I thought that this program could really help my research. But I think the other aspect is as I got to shadow and work with doctors, I got to see the value and enjoyment they got. And I got as well just by shadowing and interacting with the patients and seeing what goes on in the clinic. Mm -hmm. And so I think when I saw that this degree allows you to do kind of both, you can learn how to be a clinician, but then you can also do research. That's what really sold me on the program. So sometimes individuals, uh, they get discouraged because MD-PhD, it's a very long program, right? Mm -hmm. Eight, nine, ten years, mm -hmm. two years of medical school. And then you left to start your PhD work, and then you come back to medical school for your third and fourth year. Do you have any advice to those who you know who may look at that and say, "Oh, that's too long of a journey for me"? Well, I, I think for me, it's it's if you, I, I think just the whole like with any career, it's not really about the end game or where you end up. Mm. It's kind of about the process, the journey, the journey exactly. And if you like the process, if you like medicine and you like research, and you enjoy it, it. I mean, those years will just zip right by. Mm. And so for me, it's not so much that there's this bucket of gold per se at the end of the tunnel, but it's like, I'm really enjoying myself along the way and wouldn't really want to spend these eight years any other way. So, mm. so it doesn't feel long to me at all. It's exactly what I'd want to do. Perfect. So you just took step one a few months ago uh -huh. and now you're in the middle of your PhD coursework. Mm -hmm. So what's an average day like for you? I mean, what do you do? Well, I'd say it's, it's a, a fair bit different than med school. It's much less structured. I mean, I still have classes that I take, and that's kind of the structured piece. But in terms of the rest of my days, it really varies from day to day, whether I'm reading papers, trying to think about new ideas, whether I'm writing code for an experiment or completing a new experiment. It's kind of – it really varies. And so mm -hmm. it's 
I guess that's the value and the curse of it is there's not much structure, so you kind of get to work on what you want, but at mm -hmm. the same time, you have to figure out what will be effective that'll kind of drive the research forward. Okay. So it sounds like, are you in different labs or a lab? So how's it, how's that work? Yeah. So now I'm, I'm, I'm working in like one image, like, so the MRI imaging group here and the area that I'm really focusing on right now is we're interested in seeing if we can characterize, um, ultrasound waveforms with MRI. You got to really dumb it down for yeah. me, Lauren. I don't know this stuff at <laughs> yeah. all. And so, so really what we're, our goal is we have this device where we can ablate tissue mm -hmm. with ultrasound energy. Wow. And so we're using MRI to monitor the treatment. So we're using it to measure temperature and also to characterize where we're going to ablate. So this would have huge uh, impact in the field of radiation oncology, correct? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a many, many applic potential applications the field's interested in. Mm -hmm. I think the ones that I'm most excited about are these applications in the brain. Mm. Um, so, for example, now when you, um, we could potentially replace some of the treatments where you have to drill a hole in the skull, mm. place a deep brain stimulator. You may be able to do that just with keeping everything intact and sending sound waves into the brain. Wow. And so this is still pretty new, and there's still a lot of work being done to make sure that it will work and that it's safe, but that's kind of... I think so, in exciting areas. So is this kind of still in the world of theory or have you started like experiments on animals yet or like where, where is this? So it's, I mean, I think it's, so there have been some centers that have done, I think one of my favorite videos is, and I'm blanking on the group name right now, but. It's they, okay. People are listening. We'll go up and look it up. Don't worry. But yeah. it, it's a patient that has a, a tremor um, and he's unable to grab a cup of water and drink it. Mm. And. They put him in the MRI with this system in. They do a small ablation in the brain. He gets out, and he's able to grab the cup of water and drink it. And so minimal sedation wow. and awake during the whole procedure. Wow. And so I think – so there's a lot of, like, exploration on what it can be used for and where. And kind of I think our group's interest is the technical side is how do we make it safer? How do we make the monitoring better? How do we make it more predictive so we know exactly where we're depositing the energy? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the goal of our group. Wow. That's cool. How many people are in your group? Um, so there, there's a, it's a pretty good size. I'd say we probably have around 10 researchers that are okay. working in this area of focused ultrasound. And are you the only student or are there a bunch of other PhD students? Kind of in the There's group? a bunch of other PhD okay. students okay. as well. Okay. And are they kind of working toward the same goal or they have kind of little offshoots that they're working on or everyone's just focused on this one main project? So it's, I think a lot of them are working on this, I guess this technology, mm -hmm. but there's so many different aspects. There's the MRI side, there's the ultrasound side, and then there's also understanding just the interaction between the ultrasound and the, so then then the biology of it as well. What is exactly going on to the tissue? And so there's, there's many different, I that, guess, people That's so cool, Lauren. I do not have a PhD. I just, the way I envision it, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. You're in this really cool lab space. There's a bunch of whiteboards everywhere with like mathematical formulas, and you guys are like, like you know, you're standing there with your hands over your mouth, staring at it and erasing stuff, and and then maybe there's some cool lasers somewhere and some like I don't know proton accelerators. Am I close at all or no? Well, I, I think <laughs> we definitely have some very cool lab space, yes, okay. and we definitely do have the meetings where the whiteboard comes out and okay. people are scribbling stuff. Okay, but um, but a lot of it is computer time as well like okay. sitting at the computer writing code okay 
Um, but there definitely is that aspect, and that's I think those are the aspects that really excite me when you get to work on the cool equipment. And you, some people are wearing goggles, some people aren't. Some people yeah. have white lab coats. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah soldering. A couple things. people hold, are holding clipboards. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's. I mean, I wouldn't say we do that all the time, but yeah. there are definitely those moments. So. Yeah, it just makes me think of those Far Side cartoons by Gary Larson. Yeah. Remember those growing uh-huh. up? Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of like scientist PhD kind of uh, cartoons. So mm-hmm. it makes me laugh. All right, cool. So going on. Um, so first two years in med school mm-hmm. under your belt. Yeah. What was the biggest surprise, both both positive and negative? Yeah. So I, let's see. I mean, in terms of, so I think the biggest positive is probably just how much it's shifted my perspective on the way I live my life and the way I view the world, and also the way I kind of view the medical field. I, I think kind of when I when I was coming into medicine, um, I, in the first week or so, we had a professor that kind of asked the whole class a question: What is the goal of a doctor? What is the goal purpose of this medical field. And in my mind, I was thinking, you know, treat disease, extend life, cure people. And he said something that took me kind of a while to understand. And I've thought about it a lot over the last couple of years is he said that in his mind, what the role of medicine was, was to relieve suffering or to reduce suffering. Mm-hmm. And kind of as I've learned through the last few years in medicine, I think I've started to take that viewpoint much, much more is kind of for all of us. I mean, life is finite. It's absolutely amazing being here. This is a wonderful place. And no matter what we do, things are going to go wrong. No matter mm-hmm. how much we try to fix them, we're not going to get the ultimate fix. Yeah. And kind of the goal of this medical system along the way is not necessarily to say that we've failed if we haven't fixed a disease, but more if we, have we helped reduce suffering, have we helped that patient achieve what they want to achieve? Yeah. And so I kind of, I've taken that same perspective to my life. Like when things go wrong, I just try to be like, well, things aren't perfect. Or if, if I'm injured and it's just like, this is just part of life and I try to, um, apply those same techniques. It's just, this is amazing to be here. Yeah. And, uh, I liked what you said, Lauren, and going back to like, you know, the neurosciences, something that I've learned, you know, I, I inherently life is very fragile. Mm-hmm. Life is fragile, unpredictable. And, you know, I'm a psychiatrist and, you know, as part of our boards, we study neurology. And one of the things I'm struck by is that, and I'm going to just really reduce this to the common denominator. Yeah, yeah. So everyone understands is that our brains for the vast majority of this, we're in this like perfect equilibrium. If there's too much activity in our brain. You have a seizure, right? Mm-hmm. If there's too little activity. You're like in a coma. So it's just like, and then like balance that with like going throughout your day and sleeping, going to sleep and waking up. It's just amazing that our brains exist on this field. And then any, any deviation from that causes problems. So yeah. I kind of like that when you were talking kind of struck me, especially with your work with someone with like, like a, a tremor or a seizure or something like that. Like, yeah, and that's like that's the suffering right there. People who have seizures or people who have comas. And it's just amazing to me our brains can just work on this plane. And granted, mm-hmm. the longer we live, the more problems we have yeah. near the end of our lives. So, yeah. So, biggest negative? What, what kind of took you back? Yeah. So, I don't know if I'd call it so much of a negative, but I think one of my biggest surprises, I think, was how hard medicine is and how hard medical school has been for me. Um, and it's really given me a lot of respect for people that make it the whole way and become great mm-hmm. physicians because it's one of those fields. And I haven't really seen others like it where you have to master almost everything. You have to master science. You have to master communication skills, writing, detective work, interviewing skills. And I think very few people or nobody, at least me for sure, doesn't come in with it, come into medical school knowing how to do all of those. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's very humbling when you're in medical school and you see these areas that you haven't been exposed to as much and you're not that good at and just saying like, wow, I need to work on this. Mm-hmm. And so I think 
that was kind of the most shocking for me is having areas where I'm like, wow, I'm struggling on this. I need to work on it. But I think that's also been one of the most exciting parts of it as well. So it's kind of a, Mm -hmm. um, is just that the program teaches you to master these skills in areas that you may not be as proficient in as you should have been coming in. Would you say you, you were humbled? Uh, yeah, I think very much so. Mm. Um, because I think for me, I like kind of sitting down at a board and solving problems. And I think, um, one of the things I've really learned is one of the most important things is knowing what questions to ask and asking those questions because you don't really have the information to sit down at the board and figure it out unless you knew exactly how to get that information out of the patient. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so yeah, no, I think I've been very humbled and it's, but it's been a great humbling as well because I've been able to learn so much and Mm -hmm. work on those areas that I may never have discovered were weaknesses. Yeah. That's very beautiful. I agree with that. I mean, so let's talk about your little background first. Mm -hmm. So, um, you went to Princeton for undergrad, right? Yeah, that's correct. So coming, you know, coming to the University of Utah School of Medicine, it still was a big jump, you know, going from undergrad to grad school at this mm-hmm. level. Would you, would you agree? Or Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think it was just, it was very different. So like I, when I was in my undergrad, I like, so in high school, I was like a total physics guy and mm-hmm. loved physics. And I think it was a jump in the sense that the skill set is, is very different, um, for medicine. Um, I mean, I, I apply a lot of what I learned in my undergrad and I think it really gave me a lot of that analysis, but yeah, I think uh, there was just so many skills that I learned mm-hmm. here at Utah that um, really, yeah, r- really, I think as a whole made me much, you know, more competent in this yeah. field. And then coming back to Utah, I mean, this area is kind of a homecoming in a way because you grew up in Idaho, right? Yeah. So what was the bigger jump, Idaho to New Jersey or New Jersey back to Utah? Um, well. Or, or New York region in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or, or is New Jersey just the Idaho of the East? <laughs> How would you describe it? Well, I think what I've really come to love about moving around a little is mm-hmm. every place has amazing characteristics that no other place has. Um, so, like, when I first went to the East Coast, I was used – I mean, coming from Idaho, I was used to these big open views, mm-hmm. the views of the mountains. And at first, I was kind of like, man, there's all these trees I can never see out. Mm-hmm. And then when I left the East, um, I, start, I really missed – the falls we had out there and the, and the beautiful green trees and the forest. Um, so it's, it's funny. I think it's, it plays both ways, but I think what I've really, I think one of my most, the things I love the most here about Utah is that we just are so close to the mountains. We have so many outdoor opportunities and then yet we have this wonderful, vibrant city, this wonderful university. So you can work at a high level, um, in academics you can work in the startup world. There's a great career opportunities here. You can work in medicine and then you can still be close to some of the best ski resorts and hiking there is in mm-hmm. the United States. So for me, it's a wonderful place. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you're back here. I'm glad mm-hmm. the Intermountain West has gotten you back. Lauren. Yeah. So moving on, we got a few minutes left. Um, now, I know that you rode crew. Is that how you say it? You rode crew at Princeton? I, I think, I think okay. that's the right way to say All it. All right. So let's talk about that. Do you uh-huh. have, like, how did you get interested in that? And and did you ever go out in the Atlantic Ocean? I mean, like, how, how does that work? Yeah, so, I mean, I, it's kind of funny, but I went into it not knowing a lot. Um, kind of as I mentioned before, I struggled with an injury all through high school. Sports were a huge thing. But since I missed out so much of my high school sports career, I wasn't proficient enough in any sport to really take off in college. And I knew with rowing, that was one where if you're willing to work hard, mm-hmm. they could teach you the skills you needed and you could join the team. And so that was one. And then the second reason was I wanted to stay in shape for skiing. Okay. So good, I came good. back. So mm-hmm. that, those were kind of the two reasons I initially wanted to go into it. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was one of the 
best experiences I've had in college because it allowed us to, I mean, I think the thing that's really unique about rowing in terms of team sports is there's, so just to give the, the, in case you are not aware of the way it works, there's usually eight people in Mm -hmm. a boat or so there are eight rowers and then there's a coxswain and that's the person that's kind of holding the whole team together, making calls when you need to make a move and yelling at people. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And, uh, and so it's one of the most beautiful feelings when everybody is working together and the boat just kind of surges through the water. But it's also one of the worst feelings when people aren't, when something's off with the timing mm-hmm. and nobody's hitting together. Were you a rower or were you the coxswain? I was a rower. Okay. Um, but it, yeah, it's uh, so it's one of those love hate sports where there are times you love it. There are times you absolutely hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was great cause we would travel all over the East to, for our races. And so we got to row on a lot of the waterways out there. Cool. And so it was a very interesting way to explore, I guess, the eastern part of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to find it. Unfortunately, uh, I could not. Was your crew, was your crew team pretty good? I mean, did you win a lot of competitions? Um, yeah. So our school, um, along with a number of others, have a pretty strong program. Okay. So they're they're very deep programs. We so our our varsity. So there's different brackets. There's heavyweight, lightweight, mm-hmm. um, and that's just kind of like wrestling. And there's a weight cutoff. Depending on how heavy the people are in the boat. Yeah, how heavy okay. the people are in the boat. Okay. And so our heavyweight team, we had about um, we, we had about 30 people on the team. And so we would race with three boats. There would be our fastest, our, so that we call it the V1, the V2 for the second varsity, and the V3 for the third varsity. And our V1 was very fast. I mean, we would have a number of Olympians that won medals cool. um, rowing wow. that boat. So. Um, but I'm not saying I was not in that range. I was usually rowing more in the three V and the two V, but it was, it was still a very competitive, competitive racing community. So would practice just entail rowing or would you guys actually go to the gym and like lift weights? I mean, what, what did that entail training? Yeah. So kind of our official training we'd have on the water practice six days a week. Mm -hmm. So, um, Monday through Saturday, and then we'd usually do weights, so those were in the afternoon. We we had it nice. A lot of schools they do their rowing at like five a.m. Yeah, there's that kind of the image of like you yeah. know the sun's rising and then <laughs> yeah. you know there's this really clear water and then just this crew just goes by silently with the the coxswain going. I don't know what they one two yeah. or go. I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure what they say. Yeah, we we had it nice. We uh, mm-hmm. we would row at four thirty in the afternoon, okay. and because we were on this lake that had a lot of trees around it, and so it's protected, and there weren't a lot of other boats, so we mm-hmm. could kind of go at any hours. Um, and then the mornings we'd have like weight sessions, maybe two or three times a week. And then we'd also have just, um, and then the rest of it was kind of on our own where we were supposed to do more conditioning. And did you have your spot in the boat? Like that was your spot. You're like third or fourth back or would, would you kind of rotate or, or you would have assigned seating? Yeah. So it, it's, it's a whole process and of how you kind of select which boat the people are in mm-hmm. and then also what position in the boat they are, because it's, it's very, very different where you're rowing. Like if you're rowing in the bow, you're kind of like the last guy and that part of the boat sits higher on the water. Mm-hmm. And I, I think your oar height and basically your stability can play a significant role on affecting the entire boat. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you sit more up towards the stern and everybody's following you if you're in the stern. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be laying down a perfect rhythm for everybody to follow or else the, everything falls apart. So I, I don't quite know what the coaches do, but they do a lot of work in figuring out what boat you're in. And a lot of that for us came down to, um, there's this rowing machine and it's called an erg. And mm. so it's basically, you have an oar handle hooked to a chain and there's a computer monitor that registers how hard you're pulling. 
And so they will, so one time a year in the spring, before we'd officially start a racing season, we would, you know, all get together and we would pull as hard as we could on that and see what our times were. Mm. And that was a big component of factoring into how, where you're going to, which boat you're going to be in. Okay. But then from there, there's a lot of jockeying and politicking. Yeah. Well, more so they will actually, will actually pull the boats together on the water, switch one person. Mm hmm. And then see if that switch made the boat go faster or slower. Wow. And so you hope that your switch made your boat go faster because then that means you're going to get in a little better seat. And the crazy thing to me is like these times are within milliseconds, right? I mean, what, like when I watch these races, it's uh-huh. like, you know, one boat is like, you know, maybe three inches ahead of another boat. But that like translates into like a win or a gold medal or however that works out. So Yeah, it's, no, it's it's pretty small. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we measure a lot of it in seats. Mm-hmm. So it's like how many seats are you up on the boat next to you? Mm-hmm. And a lot of races can be won or lost by half a seat so that's equivalent of one person in one boat missing one stroke could make all the difference wow so any appropriate cool crew stories you can share yeah no i do have one and it's one that i think if my coach heard me telling it he would not be too happy with me but it's uh, okay the the medical school will protect you (laughs) well it's it's been long enough that it was so it was we had a, a big big race coming up and somebody in the boat above me got injured and he was one of our really good rowers. And so my coach asked me if I would row up for this race. And so row in the faster boat. And this was kind of like my shot. This was like the first time I'd made my bump from the third varsity to the second mm-hmm. varsity boat. With the and big boys. Yeah. With the big boys. And yeah. they were and they were fast. And, and so I was really excited about this race. But there was a lot of pressure riding on it as well. And back in college, I was like a big longboarder cruising around campus on longboards. And so literally two hours before we had to leave for this race, I, there was like a hose running across the path somewhere. Not the hose. <laughs> yeah. Hit the hose. I mean, just total wreck and landed right on my right shoulder. And I could barely lift my right arm, like to <laughs> like be level with my shoulder. And I had this really horrible dilemma. Cause I was like, well, the shoulder's pretty bad shape and I don't know if I'm going to be able to row tomorrow. Like, mm-hmm. I just don't know how it's going to work out. But at the same time, you don't turn down that one shot. You get one shot at potentially rowing faster and one chance to prove yourself. And I may never get it again, my entire college career. And so I decided not to tell my coach and went to the race. And during race day, it was the same. I could not lift my mm-hmm. arm above my shoulder, but luckily in rowing, you don't really need to. And so, and it was, and it was a wonderful race. It was one of those photo finish races. And we, um, when we finished, we didn't know who won, but we had edged out the other two crews by, you know, just, you know, a few feet. So, so all in all, it, it worked out splendidly, but I never, your coach I, never found out. He never found out. You're telling him right now through the pod. I am. None, none of my other teammates ever knew either because did you treat yourself with like a little ibuprofen or yeah, I mean, a little <laughs> shot of, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the ER, get a shot of lidocaine or something. There was definitely some ibuprofen. Okay. Um, I think luckily, um, it was, I mean, there were just so many lucky things about it is in rowing. Only one arm is really used to transfer most of your power. Mm -hmm. And then one arm is more to position the oar properly. And so luckily my power arm wasn't the one hurt. So, so I, I squeaked by, yes, there was probably some ibuprofen in there, but yeah, I never told anybody just because I was so embarrassed. I had this wonderful opportunity and yet I almost screwed it up. And I'm, so the crew uniforms, do they cover the shoulder? I mean, could you see the bruise or? It wasn't so much – I don't think I really bruised badly. Okay. It was just – still to this day, I don't know what I did, but it was just some something mm-hmm. in there, yeah. Some muscle was not happy with me. Well, Lauren, we'll 
we'll make sure we'll, we'll we'll hashtag Princeton Tigers crew and see if is the coach still back there. Um, so, some of them are, but that current coach, I think he's doing stuff um, with uh, the national team rowing now. Oh, okay, all right. So you've more or less spiked your chances of ever rowing for the national team. By yeah, telling the story. But, yes, but I, th- I think I'm probably yeah, past I think that age. On. Yeah. <laughs> Although I would love to. I don't think they'd quite want me right now. Okay. Well, Lauren, that's a great story. I thought you were going to talk about – I don't know. I've heard I, – I, again, I Googled some of this stuff. Apparently, like, when rowers have to defecate or urinate, there's sometimes dilemmas that they face. Okay. So I'm glad you can tell that kind of story. <laughs> yeah. <All right>. no, <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to go into that as well. Okay. All right. Last thing. Moving on. Um, something else that's unique about you is that you have – um, a history. You have a business experience. Mm-hmm. So, talk a little bit more about that. How did you get interested in that, and and like where did that lead you, and what what happened? Well, I think a, I think a lot of the same drive to be interested in research is kind of the same as in business. As you see something that's not quite out there, or you see a solution to a problem that you think, hey, there's this could be cool, and this mm-hmm. could help in that way. And so, I've kind of, I mean, I've always loved tinkering and building stuff, and I think that's mm-hmm. kind of where it, where it comes from. Um, I used to build skateboards back in the, my, you know, back when I was in college and high school. And, and it, again, it was one of those situations is there was still a bunch of skateboards out there on the market. And my brother and I were like, Hey, well, maybe we can make them a little better. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think it kind of, the interest in kind of business related things started from that is just this idea of, Hey, I can, I can build this and see, and then see if other people want it. Mm-hmm. So, and then. Specifically, you got interested, like, with your coding experience, you got interested in, like, startups. Like, mm-hmm. you had some sort of company mm-hmm. that, yes. that, with everything else going on in your life, <laughs> that you were running, too. So, what happened there? What was going on? Well, so it was, uh, it was based off of this booklet that I received in college. It was, so I, I mean, I'm dating myself here now, but when I started college, Facebook wasn't around yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it came out my freshman year, and, uh, what we had before that is we had this booklet that was called the Facebook mm-hmm. and it would contain a picture. I remember that too. Like, yeah. yeah, when I think it was normal for most colleges and yeah. universities, like when you go in as a freshman, you got the Facebook and had pictures of everyone in your dorm or your college, whatever. So yeah, it, exactly. I mean, it had, yeah, their pictures, the little name and, mm-hmm. and it was great because you go, you'd meet people and then you go back and you look up where they're from and mm-hmm. you check out their name and you'd see what, what their hairstyle was like in high school or whatever. And, uh, and so, with our company, we kind of went that similar route. Um, my wife and I, we were getting married and, you know, I grew up in Idaho. She grew up in Ohio. We were in New York at the time. Mm-hmm. And we just had all our friends and family that had never met each other. And we're like, well, how could we like connect everybody, introduce them all and make them have a great time? And so we sat down with Word and spent probably like 40 hours just like searching the internet for everybody's photo. We wrote like a fun little bio about all of our guests and so we were never, ever planning on starting a business. It was just like mm-hmm. a fun little wedding thing we could do. And it was a huge hit. And, our, you know, everybody really connected over the weekend and got to know each other. And after our wedding, a, a number of our friends started coming up to us when they started getting married and asked, hey, could you send us that template? Or, hey, could you help us piece together one of those booklets for us as well? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, after – and so we were still like, yeah, we'll help you. But when I think it really struck us that we maybe should try to take this a little bigger – is we were at one of these weddings where we didn't really know many people there and everybody kept coming up and saying, wow, this is the most amazing thing. And that, I think that's when we kind of said, Hey, there might be something more mm-hmm. to it. And so, um, we kind of started small we threw up a landing page. And I think when we really thought that something may be happening is a uh, couple months after we threw up that landing page, we got reached out to from Procter and Gamble 
and they were putting on a conference and they were like, Hey, we would love to see what you guys can do. We'd love to create something like this for our event. Wow. And so, so we kind of like, it was one of those things where it wasn't really planned. And, it was just, and you were charging them by this point, right? Uh, yes. You were not yeah, asking right. PG&E to like give you shampoo and soap and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, we were, we okay. were at that point we started charging. <laughs> okay. Yes. That's good. Good. Right. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I think it was, it just kind of, I mean, we weren't planning on it. It just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then, and with that, I, I don't know. So, so Lauren, like with that business experience, with your you know research experience, it sounds like you brought a lot of it to the table in your kind of journey to become a doctor, to become a researcher. So, yeah, yeah. no, I, th- I think so. I mean, I think it's all, I think all of these kind of skill sets and avenues play off of each other. It's, I mean, I think the ultimate goal with, um, research in medicine is to really try to have it translate to the clinic so that it can make an impact. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of challenges in terms of one, knowing what are the things that should be translated. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what medical school is really great for. And two, the research, I mean, to really make groundbreaking change, you need to have new discoveries. And then part of it's a more practical piece of the kind of the more business piece or how do you actually just get stuff done? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, there's this great idea, but you have to figure out how to take it from an idea to actually making it be used. And that's also, I think, a very good skill that you learn when trying to start a startup. Yeah. Well, Lauren, it's been fantastic talking to you. I'm excited about your research. I'm excited about your future. Oh, we'll so have to have you come back to the pod in, uh, you know, in the future and kind of give us an update. Right? I, I would love to. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been All wonderful. Right. All right. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Chan. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.